Kathy Freeman for me was a, an idol and a hero. And I still distinctly remember where I was when she won that 400 metres. That at that time was so big for our people. And like as a kid, you don't really understand it. But because I knew I was Aboriginal, this is going back to my primary school days. It's like, oh, like that's who we are. I can see me and her. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. I first got to know Nat Heath through my involvement with the Indigenous Marathon Project. Uh, he's just the most relaxed bloke, uh, somebody who is incredibly comfortable with his extraordinary athletic ability. Uh, Nat has knocked off no fewer than six Ironmen, uh, run multiple marathons and can run a marathon in less than three hours. Uh, he's the manager for the Aboriginal Services Team, the New South Wales Department of Education, uh, and has completed a Bachelor of so- Social Science, majoring in Aboriginal Studies, Sociology and Social Policy. He's somebody who's deeply steeped in the worlds of athletics, uh, Indigenous education, uh, and somebody who, at this particular moment in history, I thought could offer us some really fresh and thoughtful insights. Nat, thanks so much for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Yeah, no, uh, Kaya. Uh, so Kaya is a Noongar word for hello. Um, thanks for having me, Andrew. I just want to uh, acknowledge that um, I'm meeting on Bidjigal country here in Sydney, um, currently based over in Maroubra, um, beautiful little suburb here in Sydney. And yeah, big thanks for obviously giving up your time and having the interest to, I guess, share my story and have a yarn with you. I should acknowledge too, I'm uh, speaking from the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people and uh, pay my respects to their elders. Uh, Now, I wanted to start with uh, your family's story. Uh, Your great-grandmother, I understand, was a domestic servant for the dreaded A.O. Neville in Western Australia. Tell me about her and, and him. Well, I mean, my story with her is only, I guess, I, I never had the opportunity to meet my great-grandmother. Um, her name was originally Lillian Wongawal, um, but when she was removed, they changed her name to a more English name to Book It. Um, and she passed away at quite a young age, um, so I never had the opportunity to meet her, but I've... I guess, learn more about her experiences um, from particularly my uh, auntie, who was my grandfather's sister. And so she was um, she was born in a little town called Waluna, which is in the Western Desert um, in Western Australia. And she was removed under the Aboriginal Protections Act in Western Australia. Uh, I'm not sure what year, but she was removed as a two-year-old and with her two sisters. And she was taken to Moor River Native Settlement, which is the one, I guess, kind of made famous by the movie Rubber Proof Fence. And her two sisters were a bit older and they too escaped um, the, the um, I guess, the mission or reserve there. And she was left behind because she was only two. And 
So she was trained up to be a domestic servant um, and to Scott Morrison, that's essentially slavery, just to kind of amplify his uh, poor judgment in what he said the other day. Um, but, yeah, so she became A.O. Neville's domestic servant and this was before he became the chief protector of Aboriginal people. And I guess what's interesting about her story is, so, like, in those times, him as, I guess, the um, conduit to her, her whole life was controlled by the then chief protector of Aboriginal people, as were all other Aboriginal people in that state at the time and in every other state and territory um, prior to 1967. And, you know, any requests that she uh, wanted, so if she wanted a new pair of shoes or new clothes, she would have to write a letter uh, well, she would have to ask um, A.O. Neville to request that and A.O. Neville would put in his recommendations as, I guess, kind of his her master um, to the chief protector, but the recommendations were generally not to um, afford her those luxuries. And anyway, there's, a, there's documentation between A.O. Neville and the chief protector of the time um, stating that, you know, Lily and my great-grandmother had... Um, met a bloke by the name of Philip Heath, who's my great-grandfather. Now, during that era, um, most of us are now aware that, um, look, Australia was under founded under White Australia policy and they were trying to make this beautiful, uh, white, um, pristine, I guess, country and culture and Aboriginal people were seen as a problem to that. So they, the idea was that full-blood people would die out and they had to get rid of this mixed race of Aboriginal people. Um, and the idea was to have Aboriginal people um, integrate with non-Indigenous people, marry non-Indigenous people, have children, and eventually this Aboriginality would be bred out. And so my great-grandmother told um, A.O. Neville at the time that um, Philip Heath was an Englishman, and so there's documentation of him writing that to the Chief Protector, and as the sort of weeks and months progressed, um, eventually there's a letter written to the Chief Protector from A.O. Neville saying... It uh, turns out that Philip Heath is actually an Aboriginal man and Lillian has, um, I guess, taken off with him. And uh, A.N.L. <laughs> tried to prevent that um, relationship from happening, but my great-grandfather, Philip Heath, um, kind of told him to stick it and that he wasn't going to be able to stop him. Score one for Lillian and Philip, score zero for uh, A.N.L. Neville. That's a yeah. great story. And, and I love it in that he then becomes the chief protector of Aboriginal people, but yet he could not control his own domestic servant. Um, and I just think it shows the, the strength and resilience of, um, I guess, my family, but I think that captures kind of the strength and resilience of our people in general. Um, we are the oldest living remaining culture in the world and we've had a lot of challenges over, you know, the last 150, 200 years and yet we still stand and, and what's amazing is we we still forgive and we still bring um, people such as yourself and non-Indigenous people into our communities with nothing but love. Let's jump forward a couple of generations. Uh, you're uh, not raised uh, by your uh, by your biological parents. You're raised by your your, your grandfather. Um, and uh, tell tell us tell us about how that came to pass. Yeah, so I'll try to give context. So my dad who raised me um, and who I call my dad, he he was essentially my nana's 
um, husband, partner. They, they never formally married, but they were together. So my grandfather, who was Aboriginal, um, he moved over to Sydney as a merchant seaman and he married my grandmother, um, who I call my nana, and they had three children. Um, and the oldest child being my father, um, whose name was Desmond Heath. And he, unfortunately, so he grew up in the actual suburb of Bronte, which you wouldn't know it today. Um, it's quite a wealthy community or um, area. Um, during the period of the 70s, there was a huge heroin issue within that community, um, which stemmed from the surf club. And unfortunately for my father and also my uncle, um, the middle child, he, they both fell victim to heroin. Um, and during that period, my father actually met my mother in a, a drug rehabilitation, uh, clinic, uh, I think down in Kangaroo Valley and, uh, I was created. Um, my mother had myself and I've got an, an older sister who's a couple of years older than us. And unfortunately she was also a heroin addict and she, um, being an addict needed to go get her fix. And she left um, my sister and I, um, I guess, with no guardian or no one looking after us. She was picked up by the police and um, the police ended up contacting my dad's uh, mum and also my sister's, my grandparents too, but I didn't have much to do with um, They co were contacted as well. And so they took my sister, my mother's side, and my dad's side took me. Um, and not long after that, my, my father passed away in a car accident. Um, he was living up at sort of Southwest Rocks and he was buried at Foster. Um, and we, we, uh, I guess moved up there when I was just about one, yeah, just before I turned one, I think. So not long after he was buried and, you know, I was, I was really fortunate in, um, my, my dad who raised me, treated me as if I was his own child. He gave me everything, all the love possible, um, took me to, I don't know how many different sporting activities. I played every single sport that was possible and he, he would just, wouldn't bat an eye and just make it happen. And I, I distinctly remember him as a, when I was young and when my nana was still alive, he was working two jobs. So he moved up there. Um, he was a pest controller during the day and at night he would clean the local um, what's called the Pacific Palms Rec Club. So he'd come home early morning, have a quick nap and then he was back out working. So um, unbelievable human. And my nana ended up passing away when I was seven and then it was just me and my dad. So he, we lived together until I was 18 um, going through Pacific Palms Primary School and then Foster High. And, and then when I was 18, he said, you know, you, you can't stick around here and you head off to uni and end up at Newcastle Uni. That uh, incredible work ethic, to be working two jobs, but also to make time to take your kid to sport is something very special. Um, tell us about your experience at school, uh, when first at Pacific Palms and then at uh, Foster. How conscious were you of your Indigenous heritage? And how did other kids re respond? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess being raised by two non-Indigenous people and then predominantly obviously my dad who was non-Indigenous, uh, he didn't really understand and understand what that meant, um, which is no fault of his own. Um, and it wasn't really an issue for quite a long period of time. So 
going to Palms Primary, um, everyone was just kids, but I was the only Aboriginal kid. There was a couple other kids who were dark as well. So they were, um, their dad was Balinese. But it kind of got to a period, uh, might have been around year four, it started, and year five, it kind of became a big issue. Um, kids started kind of asking, you know, well, so what's your dad? Is he your dad? And you'd have to explain that, no, he's not my biological father. Um, and they're like, well, how come you're dark? And I'm like, oh, I'm Aboriginal. So I always knew I was Aboriginal. I just probably didn't really know what that actually meant. Um, and so it wasn't, didn't seem like that big of an issue, but then the next sort of day and then the weeks and then the years leading up after that, um, I was made quite aware that that was from some people's perspectives, not a good thing. Um, and so came the racial or racist remarks such as particularly mainly ABO, Black Sea, Coon, um, but Abbo was probably the big one, monkey, ape, all those sort of things. What um, year is this, Nat? When are, we, when are we talking about? So, yeah, you look at 95, 96, 97. It is remarkable that kids, yeah, I mean, you'd hope that kids wouldn't ever consider that acceptable on the playground today, but it's, it's remarkable that, you know, we're just talking about 23, 24 years ago and, uh, and people are, are using words that, that belong in the 19th century if they belong anywhere at all. Yeah, and they knew it was wrong because they would run as soon as they'd say it to. So, so the racist end up us. Yeah. So, and when you're one out, because yeah, I was felt like I was an Indo, like the one person there. Like you kind of you want to fight. I wasn't a fighter, but you kind of wanted to fight people, but no one was prepared to do that, which might have been lucky for me. <laughs> Yeah, like they knew what they were doing and they knew they were getting a reaction. And the difficult thing probably for me as a kid is I didn't really have anyone to go to around that because my dad, I never told my dad about it. I didn't tell him until I was probably late 20s that that happened. So it became quite a big Mm. issue because what ended up happening is there was a couple of kids. So this was by the time I was in year six, there was a few younger kids um, who are my mates today? Like they, they've learnt, they've grown up. Um, you know, times have changed. But I naturally wanted to fight a couple of these kids, and they went home and told their parents. So their parents started ringing a school saying that I was like trying to fight their kids. So when the principal called us in and we got to the bottom of it, then it all flipped. And the school was, to be honest, really good. Like they really didn't see me as the issue. They saw those children as the issue and um, were like, well, we're quite happy for you to come in, but you, your kids have actually been saying racist things. So my dad was never contacted. I didn't want him to be involved. I didn't ask him to be involved. I felt like it was something that I kind of needed to deal with. It's a big thing as a primary schooler to take that on your shoulders. Well, yeah, but like a, I don't know how dad was going to be, like he wouldn't, it'd be hard for him to relate. I, I will say one thing at, a, at an older stage. So when I was in high school, which I guess we'll move into that, the, the narrative or my life changed in that all of a sudden I went from being the only Aboriginal kid to you go to Foster. So Foster's got quite a large Aboriginal community and they got what's called Cabarita Mission. Mm. Um, 
So big Aboriginal community. And then you've also got a lot of more Aboriginal people living off the mission. So you go from being the only kid to all of a sudden there's like 70 or 80 kids. And that was amazing. I think when I first started in year seven, there was like 30 Koori kids um, in our year. And all of a sudden you kind of, I just naturally just hung out with um, Koori fellas and I just felt connected and engaged and it was like I've kind of found my people. And I, I've still had um, groups of friends who are non-Indigenous, but there was just a natural thing around that, um, which I, I can't really explain. Um, and I was going to tell you something. What was I going to tell you? Um, but the one thing that did happen in high school um, when there was no Aboriginal people around, they felt like they had the ability to be racist or to make um, racist jokes. And one of the nicknames that I, and I never liked it, that ended up um, being created um, was actually Nigger Nat. And it's the only time I think my dad really became aware of uh, issues that might've been happening with us. And one of my mates actually rang up and said, is Nigger Nat there? And he never made that mistake again because my dad gave him a fairly decent spray. Um, I did hope so. And yeah. And um, my, my dad's always been good, I guess, in regards to um, court, you know, saying what's right and what's wrong. Um, but that was probably the only time that I think he had heard it himself. And I think that kid thought it was okay to do. Like he didn't see it as an issue. And I'd highlighted to him that I wasn't really um, happy with that name. And that's kind of, I don't know if you follow, but uh, my name that then progressed from that actually became Native Nat. Um, and that's kind of stuck with us. And I, I don't actually mind that, but it originated from quite a, a racist name prior to that. And how much was sport playing a role in terms of your identity at this stage? You've always been pretty sporty, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's all I was interested in. So if you look through pretty much the majority of my school reports, it said if um, Nat was um, cared half as much about school as he does sport, he would do really well academically. <laughs> and I, sport is still like it's all I really love to do. It's my like, biggest passion, biggest interest. Like if I could have played sport, like from nine to three o'clock at school, I would have. And I essentially did. Like I would get to school, um, want to be one of the our, in high school, our bus was the first one to arrive. We used to get there about eight o'clock. I would play sport for an hour in the morning. We would do class for a couple of hours. We'd have recess. I would play sport. Lunchtime, we'd play sport. And then our bus was the last to leave. So we'd have another hour wait. I would play sport again. And then once I got home, then I would go to training. So I was continuously <laughs> playing sport. And I think that the, the for all kids, you know, when you start to reach, I guess, puberty, you are trying to work out who you are. And then if you chuck on the fact that you're a black fella too, and during those times we didn't learn heaps about Aboriginality culture, definitely not through school. Um, and whilst we all talked about and were proud to be black fellas at high school, I, I don't feel like we really learnt too much about our culture. So you're trying to understand who you are within your Aboriginal identity too. And for me, I, I wasn't from that country growing up in Foster. I knew I was from WA, but I didn't really understand where and what that meant. 
it wasn't until really when I was older I, I got a better understanding of you know who my people were and you know some of the achievements and things they've done um but going back to the sport yeah sport was oh, I kind of I guess a platform for success like I represented this in high school um senior basketball senior athletics um I didn't go to the cross country, but I qualified for cross country. Um, I represented for cricket. I think I represented for played in the school rugby league team. So I played like every single sport that was possible for that school. Um, and it was just for me, it was a way of getting out of school, out of class, but also it was just where I felt like I could have um, the greatest success and what made me happiest as well. It was in your 20s that you uh, contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome, which sounds like uh, a nightmare experience for any serious athlete. Uh, what was that like to be just one moment running around, next moment knocked flat on your back? Yeah, so that was that's probably one of the scariest moments, um, I guess, of my life um, for quite a, a, a period of time. So if that was in 2010, so 10 years ago, um, this year I had Guillain-Barre syndrome and for those that don't know what Guillain-Barre syndrome is it's essentially when your um your immune system attacks your nervous system and what it does is it causes a paralysis through your body which starts at your extremities so for me um I was playing rugby union by this stage I was in Newcastle and I was um playing first grade and Anyway, we had a. I just came back from northeast Arnhem Land. I was up at um, the Gama Festival, and this was in August. And I remember warming up for one of the games I was playing, and um, I kept having pins and needles in my feet, and I kept thinking my feet were cold. So I'd take off my boots, and I was trying to warm up my feet. And as the week sort of progressed, so we played that game over the next week. I was going to training and this um, sensation of um, pins and needles was slowly starting to, I guess, go up my like arms and legs, so more up to the main parts of your body. And on the Tuesday, we had a training session and I could feel it getting worse, but it was okay. I was making do. Thursday, I went all of a sudden, within quite a quick period, we are training, we are playing touch footy just to warm up, got through a gap. And then all of a sudden got caught by someone who I was like, oh, that's unusual. They shouldn't have caught me. And then as the training sort of progressed, we are doing these drills and I couldn't keep up with the forwards. Then I couldn't catch the ball. I couldn't kick the ball. I just became really uncoordinated. Um, so I went to the doctors a few times in that week to try to work out what's going on. By Sunday, I was meant to be playing footy and I, I rang up the coach and said, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to play. And I'd woke up and I had essentially Bell's palsy. So half my face wasn't working and my dad came down and I was still going to go to the football game and watch it. And he said, you've got to go to hospital and um, took us to John Hunter hospital. And the, the thing with Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's not like you can just have a blood test and go, Oh, you have Guillain-Barre syndrome. They have to essentially rule out every single disease, cancer, HIV. They've got to go through a whole heap of testing to try to work out if it's possibly this or that. So, for that week period, it took about a week to diagnose and I kept progressively getting worse. And no one sort of had come to us and said, oh, it's potentially Guillain-Barre syndrome. This is what it may look like. So I'm starting to, I guess, potentially ready my, myself that the fact that this could be it. 
And it was, it was kind of funny in that because I was a kind of rare case, um, you'd have all the student doctors coming in. So they'd be wheeling in these groups of doctors that come and see me uh, about three different groups a day. So I was like, obviously whatever I've got weird because they've got a lot of people coming in seeing me. And I guess the, the scary thing about that was I was particularly worried for my father because that would have been really, really difficult for him. And that was my biggest concern was him. Um, but anyway, fast forward, we, after about a week, we get the diagnosis of what it is. And the doctors say, you know, the, the likelihood is you won't have the same strength, the same endurance and the same speed. And that really became, for me, I've always been, if you tell me I can't do something, then I try to defy that. <laughs> like if people tell me to do something, I won't do it. But if you tell me not to do it, then I'll do it. So bit of reverse psychology but um so I just kind of took that as a challenge and you know I lost the ability to walk I was essentially in a wheelchair for a period of time and when you lose the ability to walk the one thing well for me was running I, I just wanted to be out run again and um I was like if I ever can like that's the one thing I just want to have the freedom of being out run so I, I set myself a couple of goals while I was in hospital one was to firstly walk again the second was to play first grade footy again because I saw that as a test of strength and speed. And the third one, which was the endurance aspect, was I wanted to do a triathlon because where I grew up in Foster was where, you know, sort of was the home of Ironman triathlon in Australia and it was something that I always thought I would do. And it kind of just planted a seed for me after that to, to test myself um, doing a triathlon and from there, um, I ended up signing up doing my first triathlon uh, about six, seven months later in Newcastle. Came nearly last, but it, it kind of um, a seed was planted to, to keep doing more of it. So most of the people listening to our podcast won't have uh, done a triathlon themselves. Uh, t- tell us what you what you love about triathlons. Um, well, it's a combination of three sports. So that's, a, that's always a good start. So it's swimming, cycling, and running. So it tests you across three different sports. Um, so you can be terrible at all three or you can be good at all three depending <laughs> on um, the amount of work you do. But I've always played team sports and I do dearly miss team sports and I do love to go back and play um, team sports when I can. But the thing about triathlon is you're accountable to yourself, same as running. Um, if you do not do the work, you don't get the results. And the less you do, the worse your day is going to be. And I've always been a competitive person. And when I started triathlon, I was terrible at it. And I was like, this is like really the only sport I've been terrible at. And I can't have that. And it just sort of like, I kind of got addicted in a sport. It is a really addictive sport. And that's probably something I did pick up from my parents in them being addicted to drugs, I became my addiction sport. And triathlon, uh, if you've got an addictive personality, you can do quite well in it because you can you become addicted to the training. And um, I just love, yeah, the fact that it's the challenge, the hours you do. And also there's a, there is a really good social aspect about it. Like you can meet a lot of great people through the sport. Um, and for me, the big thing that I end up, I got hooked on triathlon. I started 
YouTubing like the Hawaiian Ironman and I then all of a sudden my goal became I would need to do the Hawaiian Ironman and um, you know I worked really hard and essentially I was fortunate enough that I had the the ability but also the work ethic to qualify for the Hawaiian Ironman in 2015. So let's come to Hawaii in a moment. I want to take us through though the uh, uh, experience of the Indigenous Marathon Project in 2012. You were part of the third intake of uh, Rob DeCostello's Indigenous Marathon Project. What got you into it and what? how did it change you? Yeah, so there's a bit of luck in a way. So I'd actually put my name forward in 2010 when they did the first ever cohort. Um, my uncle actually sent me an email about it and I put an application in um, and didn't think much else about it. And anyway, in 2012, I was obviously starting to get into triathlons and running and um, Aboriginal fellow, I think he was working at a Wobbicle AMS in Newcastle at the time, Nigel Welch. He, um, he came into Newcastle Uni at the Wallatooka Institute, which is the Aboriginal unit there, and said, you should try it for the Indigenous Marathon Project. They're, they're holding trials um, in Sydney. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, not really sure about that. And around the same time, the documentary called Running to America, uh, I think it, it might have been like a week later, mm. which showcased... Um, the four fellas who were the the first ever group through the Indigenous Marathon Project who went and run the New York Marathon. And, um, so there was, there was Charlie Marr, Kayla Part, who were both from Alice Springs, Joanne Darwin from Meningrita, and Joseph Davies from Kununurra. And, you know, that was pretty captivating um, story that was, I guess, showcased through that documentary. And in particular, Charlie... Um, just had this kind of aura about him and I was like, that would be pretty cool. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, so what those guys had done and to kind of emulate, you know, particularly what Charlie had done and the way he carried himself. And although me and Charlie are complete opposites, he's he's introverted and I'm like completely extroverted, but there's so many great qualities that you can learn from that man. And anyway, so I ended up um, putting my name down for the tryout and, uh Fortunately, I was um, selected. I went down and did the tryout in uh, Sydney and uh, I was fortunately selected to, to be a part of the 2012 group. And for those that might remember, it's the only year that the New York Marathon has been cancelled. Um, hopefully, they're still able to get it up and running this year because of Hurricane Sandy. But mm. I guess what the Indigenous Marathon Project did to me is, for me, I, I learned how to run. Um, firstly, and how to train and what effective training is. But I also learned to love running. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, try to get into running, but they're like, oh, it's too hard, and they end up disliking it more than they like it. Um, But I kind of, during that period, got to learn to really love it. And and what I also learned is, you know, what it takes to be, I guess, do really well in endurance sports life. When I say really well, I mean, I guess, decent for, you know, your average punter. Because um, when I got selected, one of the first things uh, a mate of mine who was kind of sort of coaching me, Ben Higabottom, in triathlon, he said, well, if you're going to do a marathon, like, if you're going to be fair dinkum, your target should be to run under three hours. So 
that kind of triggered me to like set a goal of running three hours. And what then helped me, the fact being a part of the Indigenous Marathon Project, is when I'd show up to training and I'd do it, pretty much all my training by myself, um, Newcastle, whilst there's thousands of runners up there now, kind of had only just started the running boom up there. And I would go and do these training sessions and I always felt like I had to do my best because I was representing one myself, but the bigger picture was I was representing my family. I was representing, you know, the Aboriginal community. I was representing the Newcastle community, but I also felt like for me, I, I never played for Australia. I never played in state in any sport. I felt like this was kind of my representative moment on that bigger scale. And yeah. I had to represent my people to the, the best of ability and know that I'd done everything I can to do my best and to, to represent them well. I think that's something that, you know, IMP definitely taught us about the way you carry yourself, but the way you do represent your people and the way that you then advocate for them when you do have the platform and opportunity. And yeah, I think IMP just, it gave me a lot of belief and understanding of what I can do. And if I want to do something, what I need to do to make that happen because a lot of things that you might want aren't going to be necessarily given to you. You have to go and earn them. And that experience in IMP definitely taught me that. And you're now one of the uh, the best known IMP ambassadors, uh, in part because you then uh, went on to uh, to do uh, not just triathlons, but uh, Ironman triathlons. Uh, again, just for uh, the uh, the one or two uh, listeners who won't have done one, just remind us again, what are the uh, distances and the three legs of an Ironman? Yeah, so it's a 3.8-kilometre swim, a 180-kilometre ride, and then a 42-kilometre run, so a marathon, 42.2. So they're all back-to-back-to-back. How was it the first time? First time. First one was actually wasn't too bad. What was cool about it, so I went over and did it with – it was in 2013. So because of my New York got cancelled, um, I ended up doing the Tokyo Marathon the following year with IMP. So that was in February 2013. Tokyo is such a good race. Yeah, so good. And the Japanese, they love, if there's a culture of loving running, they have that down pat in Japan. There's, they just they appreciate um, the running culture and running community and the work that everyone's got and the pain that everyone's going through. Yeah. But I kind of kept from after doing Tokyo, I was like, well, my next goal is to do an Ironman. So I went over with a few mates in December 2013 and did the Bustleton Ironman, which was... That's not- Western Australia, right? Western Australia, yeah. So it's about uh, two, three hours south of Perth. So it's on Noongar country, which is um, my great-grandfather's country. He's from the Maneng people, which is further south, down towards Esperance. Um, but I felt like I was kind of back on in a way in that Noongar country and it was kind of nice to go back and do an Ironman Air for my first one and um, I was I did quite well um, I did nine hours 41 which is a very respectable time um, but it was a it's a really flat and fast course so they would have won Hawaii in the first couple of years wouldn't it yeah, definitely not now. But um, yeah, back in those first days, there's a guy by the name of Dave Scott who come through in the '80s who really most people who used when the Hawaiian Ironman first started, they were just their goal was to finish, and he kind of changed the sport to where all of a sudden you race it. And 
I think his first time was nine hours 30 when he won it. And then he eventually got down into the, the eight hour 30 mark. So, um, but yeah, it was, that was such a great experience to do. And then really after I did that first time, man, the, the goal continued to be, I need to qualify and make Hawaii. Um, so I did another Ironman the following year in Port Macquarie in 2014 and I came fourth in my age group. Um, but what I found there, I did a three hour, 10 marathon. So it was actually my PB for the marathon at the time. Nice. Yeah. So I was, had a really good run, but I had a terrible bike. So, you know, again, kind of going back to the drawing board, I realized that I have a weakness in cycling, so I need to improve it and work really hard. And the following year in 2015, I ended up winning my age group. Um, I took like nearly 25, 30 minutes off my bike time and um, was fortunate, qualified for the Lion Mind Man and got to go and experience, you know, something that people um, for their whole life are trying to train to get that opportunity to go and do. So so what's different about Hawaii? I've done a bunch of uh, tries, but uh, never an Ironman and never never been to Hawaii. So what, what is it about that race that's so special? Well, it's where triathlon really started. So um, the Hawaiian Ironman was uh, one of the first ever triathlons. But it's a world championship, which obviously gives it some credit. But And the best athletes to ever do the sport have gone over there and won. Um, but the, the, the thing that's hard about it is it's a, quite a hilly course. It gets super windy on the bike and it's really hot. So the year that I did it was 39 degrees um, and the road surface was 49. So I had tan marks or sunburnt marks for over a year after that race. My forearms peeled. <laughs> I, made, I, made, I made so many cardinal sins in that race because – being Aboriginal, I'm like, oh, I'm dark. I, I very rarely, rarely wear sunblock. And I did that race, didn't wear sunblock. And at 18 kilometres, I'm running along going, oh, this isn't too bad. Like, how good is this? Is this as hot as it gets? And uh, a bit of an older guy just gave me a, you know, said, oh, a few wise words. He goes, don't, um, don't get too far ahead of yourself. And literally 3K later, I was on the side of the road going, I don't think I can finish. It just, <laughs> it's... And incredible, it's the only race I've ever thought I may not be able to finish um, just due to being so physically exhausted, burnt. I also made mistakes on the run where I just didn't take in nutrition and by the time I realised I was depleted, I could then no longer take the nutrition in. I just started vomiting and um, having to go to the toilet uh, a few times. So it's just, it was just a, in the end it became like a death march and it's, your, your only goal is to get across the finish line. Um, but it was a special moment. I, I, I've kind of got a tradition of carrying the Aboriginal flag across the line when I finish. And from my understanding that I only know of three other Aboriginal people to do the Hawaiian Ironman. So to kind of, you know, be one of those first people to do it and carry the Aboriginal flag was such a, um, I guess a proud moment and again it was just another time where I felt like I could represent our people at a stage where our culture isn't necessarily showcased or even known. You've uh, just recently set up a group called TriMob. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, so TriMob is essentially what we've, we've formed is a Aboriginal triathlon club with the idea of getting more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the sport. So, just to 
backpedal a bit. For a number of years, I've been thinking it'd be great to have, I guess, a team or a club or when you do triathlon to be able to showcase or represent um, the Aboriginal community. And a lot of people get, you know, cool design kits. And for me, I'd always just kind of carried the flag across the finish line. And uh, one of um, my mates or brother boy who just got into triathlon at the end of last year, and he was a part of the Indigenous Marathon Project himself, Tyrone Bean. He, um, me and him started talking about when he did his first triathlon, like we should get a team, we should get an Aboriginal triathlon team so we get our own kit and we can represent our people when we're out racing. Because triathlon's a very Anglo sport. Um, it's a, it's a kind of, I guess, a sport for... I guess more wealthy people, which um, you would know in economics, Aboriginal people tend to be at the lower um, end of the socioeconomic status. And I guess for us, what we wanted to do is for all the Aboriginal people that are now doing triathlon, let's have a, a team, a club that we can then represent and that we can then showcase our people and our culture to the triathlon community that, probably hasn't much, had much exposure or much experience um, working or relating to Aboriginal people. And then we figured by having a team, that might help also break down barriers and fear to get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the sport as well. And it was really interesting just from starting up a um, Instagram page and saying, you know, we, we're setting up TriMob, it's going to be an Aboriginal triathlon group. All of a sudden we got a heap of interest of people going, I've always wanted to do it, but, you know, I was a bit scared, didn't know what to do. So you're starting to see that there's people interested in it, but, you know, for a long time, like it's not a sport that, you know, our communities did. Like you don't see, like when I was growing, you don't see any Aboriginal people um, doing triathlon who are adults. So I guess we want to try to create a culture where it's okay to give triathlon a go and make it, sort of break down the barriers where there's less fear and anxiety around the sport and where possible, um, you know, help people, encourage people just to give it a go. And the third aspect of it is that the, the club's open or will be open for non-Indigenous people too. So it provides a, an opportunity for non-Indigenous people to engage in our community. And like I said, because it, triathlon is a predominantly, it's an Anglo sport, it provides an opportunity for people who have, maybe you always wanted to but never knew where to go as far as engaging with Aboriginal people or didn't have access, we can provide access for that community. And, you know, the, the thing with triathlon is it's all around Australia and there's opportunities to go around the world so we can always showcase our people and our culture and um, really show a positive narrative about our people because, you know, mainstream media um, if people watch that, that sometimes they'll get a negative um, perception of our people and we want to show that, you know, a lot of that's false and there's a lot of good things that our people do and our community does. Yeah, I've often thought that uh, Cathy Freeman's win in the 400 in the Sydney Olympics uh, was worth uh, 100 worthy speeches from, uh, from folks like me. Uh, you know, there's something about that kind of celebration of of indigenous culture and indigenous success that's so so unifying so kathy freeman for me was a, an idol and a hero and i still distinctly remember where i was when she won that 400 meters um, and when i watch it i still get like emotional watching it um but when we went to new york to do um 
the marathon, you know, Kathy Freeman came over with our squad and, you know, I was sitting at dinner and I've got her daughter um, Ruby on my lap and she's right next to us eating and just having a conversation. I'm like, this is my idol. And that was such, <laughs> you know, without one of the great things that IMP does is it does provide you opportunities to meet people such as yourself, people like Kathy Freeman, people like Kurt Fernley, but also people like, I don't know if you know Dave Robbo from Newcastle, but absolutely. Dave stayed in my house. Yeah. Like he's one of the biggest legends on earth and, you know, he like meeting someone like him probably would never have happened if it wasn't for IMP. So, you know, those sort of things. And like what you're saying with Kathy Freeman, like, the fact of what she did and also the challenges she had along the way. I remember when she won, I think in 94 Commonwealth gold and she wore the Aboriginal flag and Arthur Tunstall was very, very disappointed in her. And the fact that she was like, well, these are, these are my people and I'm representing them as well as the rest of Australia. Like, um, that at that time was so big for our people. And like, as a kid, you don't really understand it, but, you're like, oh, that's like, that's, you could see, because I knew I was Aboriginal, this is going back to my primary school days. It's like, oh, like, that's who we are. That's, I can see me and her. And, uh, you know, we haven't ever mentioned uh, Nikki Vidmar and Adam Goods and uh, many of the other Australian legends. But on the other side of um, celebratory uh, reconciliation, there's also the acknowledgement of the, the wrongs that were done. And, we're speaking in the context of uh, Black Lives Matter protests running right across the world, including significant protests in Australia. Uh, what's yeah. your feeling as to uh, how this process is unfolding and, and how we can get the most out of this moment where people are suddenly focused on Indigenous disadvantage and reconciliation? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting one in that and it's not unusual because, you know, the Indigenous rights movement from the, the 60s and the 70s kind of followed the civil rights movement in America. And in some mm. ways, the, the civil rights issues and the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, which um, I guess captured the world's imagination in America, is really highlighted again in Australia um, our own issues and... So in many respects, it's kind of history repeating itself where I think it's terrible, obviously, what's happening to our Indigenous communities and also what's happening in other, uh, I guess, people, person of colour or African-American communities and First Nations communities across the world. But it it has provided an opportunity to capture more people who were unaware in Australia of the issues uh, around you know, Aboriginal deaths in custody, Aboriginal incarceration rates um, and other issues such as, you know, the disadvantage within, you know, Aboriginal education, constitutional um, reform. And the thing that I guess for us as First Nations people is, um, and you would be aware of well, so like my partner, Taylor Reid, has been uh, one of the, the big advocates around the Uluru Statement and, what this opportunity, I think, for us to capture a new audience is to start making bigger structural reform to Australia, which 
stops Indigenous people being powerlessness. And at the moment, um, we understand all the stats of where Aboriginal people are falling behind. We have the Close the Gap, to, well, the new Close the Gap refresh coming out. But the issue with the Close the Gap refresh is it, it continuously looks at Indigenous people as the issue. We need, you know, Aboriginal kids need to finish Year 12, Aboriginal people's life expectancy needs to be lowered. But it's, it's not looking inward at Australia's an issue because if we put in a target around having less Aboriginal people incarcerated, if we just look at Aboriginal people as the issue, we haven't solved the systematic problem, which is Aboriginal people are systematically targeted by police. Um, and that's been proven in the, the police targeting system in New South Wales where over 50% of the people on the, their target system are Aboriginal and yet we only make up 3% of the population. So I think that what this um, the Black Lives Matter movement has done is it's providing a, a really great opportunity and a platform for First Nations people in this country to push and advocate and educate the rest of Australia on the reforms that we need. And I know yourself being, I don't know if you support it, but I know Labor has has backed that if they were elected, they would enshrine the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Absolutely. Because we can't keep making the same mistake if we're going to have a closer gap report and we're going to have targets, yet we have non-Indigenous people who then make the policies around Aboriginal education or incarceration. We're just, we're going down the same um same line that we've previously keep failing and you know aboriginal people want to have a voice at the table on what these policies look like we're not asking to i mean i know turnbull used that you know every single policy impacts aboriginal people but we're not talking about that and he knows that we we're talking about issues that are targeting aboriginal people that we have a say on how those policies work how those initiatives will be implemented and to make sure that every dollar that does get spent by the government and so much is currently wasted because of, you know, it goes through management and whatnot and never actually hits the ground, that we can make sure that every dollar spent is actually well spent and actually is coming from a place of expertise and not a place of, um, you know, government bureaucrats making decisions and rush decisions because they need to please a particular minister of the time. Um, so, you know, hopefully this opportunity isn't lost and I don't think it I think it there there is a huge opportunity I think the next generation of people are much better informed they're much more interested um, and I think what this will do is that you're always going to have your people I guess to the far right who are never going to be interested in this space um, and live in a world of denial and but for that sort of middle ground people where they were like I don't really have an opinion. It doesn't impact on me. I don't really care. They now see it's right in their face and they are the group that is becoming engaged. And I think hopefully from this, this movement and this opportunity, we're able to really get huge structural reform that can make a difference. You spoke before, Nat, about uh, the importance of education. Uh, your partner, Taylor Reid, set up a Blackfella book club. Uh, is there a particular book that you're reading or that uh, you think is uh, is important for our listeners to read? It's a good question. Um, I'm not the greatest reader, to be honest. Um, I think one book, and it has been highlighted a lot, um, 
over the last year, and rightfully so, is um, Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. Yes. Because what it does is highlight the fact that, you know, we weren't just a group of people wandering around ho- um, hopelessly and living this um, nomadic or semi-nomadic life, that we did have a structured system of horticulture, agriculture and aquaculture that, you know, was really glossed over by um, Australians for a long time. And I can understand why the previous people did it because it it made it easier for um, Australia to continually say, well, Aboriginal people were just living hopelessly, not using the land, so we had to come and help them. But what that book really does is um, tell the truth of um, the fact that Aboriginal people, you know, were engaged in systems of, you know, agriculture, that there was huge wheat belts all across the country and the way that how dramatically this environment has changed since particularly, um, I guess, Western farming agriculture came in here and where you had animals with quite hard hooves, how that completely changed the um the soil surface and the effects of that. And that can obviously be seen, you know, with the great sort of droughts that we have that when we do have rain, um, it turns into floods. It doesn't capture because there's actually nothing on the top surface. And, um, you know, what's then the way that the river systems are particularly in with the Murray-Darling, like the way that that's been manipulated for cotton farming, um, has obviously then dried out a river system that's been, you know, flourishing for thousands of years. And, you know, the impact that that then has on those Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities on on those river banks is so detrimental. And obviously the big one too at the um, beginning and the end of last year with the, the um, huge fires on the south coast, like that's all stuff that, you know, our old people used to manage through, like, our environment is meant to be burnt through fire stick farming um, and that's been kind of lost. And, you know, though this book kind of captures the need for us to go back and start working with the environment the way it's meant to be and not trying to manipulate the environment to work to us. You uh, posted on social media a few days ago that you'd uh, written a poem uh, in the uh, uh, in in response to, uh, to to the current events, what led you to write the poem? And I wonder whether you'd be willing to share it with us. Yeah, yeah. So I'll definitely share it. So the poem's called "Do You Know Me?" But we um, so I work for the Department of Education, and everyone's essentially working from home at the moment. And we actually um, one of the teams, the comms team, organised. Um, uh, I guess a sorry day morning tea, which was really the first time our department were well, within the early childhood education director that something um, substantial was driven without our team having to drive it, which was really nice because it's funny when it comes to reconciliation. <laughs> like a lot of the times it's like, oh, can the Aboriginal team get that organised? And I'm always like, well, who are we reconciling with ourselves or... Uh, <laughs> So that what ended up happening is we, you know, a couple of the um, my team members were on a panel along with um, a couple of non-Indigenous people um, who work in the director, and that was really good. And 
we also then showcased a um, – so there, there's a website called the Stolen Generations Testimonials and um, I've used um, old Uncle a few times. He, he, Uncle Cecil Bowden, he's, he's passed away now and he, he talks about his experience um, at Bomaderry Children's Home and Kinchilla Boys' Home, which is where Aboriginal – children were removed so Aboriginal boys when they got to a certain age would go to Kinchilla Boys which is up at near Kempsey and Bomaderry um they both the boys and girls were taken there until they were at a certain age and then the girls would go to Cootamundra and we watched just him I guess reliving or recapturing retelling his story and it's it's just so hard to watch and it's you can see how difficult it is for him to to talk about yeah. So watch that. And then also um, there's an, another documentary that's just come out. We just watched the trailer, which is called uh, Through My Blood It Runs, which is I think just kind of showcasing a, a young Aboriginal fellow and his family um, from, it might be from the APY lands. And I don't know, I just got this sudden urge of like, I just had to put something down on paper. And it, it's, I guess it's kind of about sometimes I feel like, you know, even working in education, it's like people are trying to give us the answer rather than listening. And I guess kind of what my poem was about was trying to say like to people, do you actually know me or, you know, are you kind of trying to create what you want me to be in a way? So I'll read it to you anyway. So poems, like I said, called Do You Know Me? So do you know me? Or do you know what you want me to be? Do you respect me? Or do you only respect what we do like what you would like me to be? Do you trust me? Or do you trust what others say about me? Will you walk with me? Or will you only walk the path that you lead me to see? Will you talk to me? Or will you only talk to me with the language that you want me to speak? Will you sing with me? Or will you only sing a song that you write for me? Will you cry with me? Or will you try to find a cure for me? Will you fight with me? Or will you only fight for what you think I should be? Will you let me be free? Or do you think you know what's best for me? Do you see me? Or do you only see what you want to see? Do you love me? Or do you only love what you want me to be? And then it goes on, to all my people, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, I love you, I will walk with you and I'm proud to be you. To Australians, see us, hear us, love us, walk with us, empower us and be proud of us. Yinyamara Natheith. So Yinyamara is uh, a Wiradjuri word, so that's um, Teela's people um, and it means respect. Thank you, Nat. That's a pretty powerful statement uh, at this at this moment in history. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate you take, sharing sharing the wisdom, but also the vulnerability that comes from uh, from reading out your own poetry. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Like I said, it was I've never really written. I've, I'm actually not. My Teela's trying to encourage me to to write stories because I've I've I always. Um, we kind of help raise my niece and nephew and whenever they stay 
particularly when they're young, I used to tell them a lot of stories to when they went to sleep and a few of those stories I, I kind of just created and she's been trying to encourage me to, to write them and it was just an interesting thing. It was literally we had that moment with work and all of a sudden within 15 minutes that was written and um, yeah, it was just something that I felt like I had to get down on paper. Well, Matt, as we wrap up, let me ask you a, a few questions I ask each of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. I, uh, uh, two answers. I wouldn't give any advice um, because I think you need to um, – I think a part of growing is learning as you go and learning from mistakes as well. The one thing, if I could – do differently or tell myself is um relating back to sport is you know foster isn't if you're the best in foster doesn't mean you're the best and if i could have if i understood what actual training was and um you know what the best actually looked like i would have liked to have given myself a better opportunity to do better in um i was pretty decent at soccer and i felt like i could have gone further but um, I don't think I gave myself the best opportunity of that. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Used to believe? Um, I This change actually probably when I was 17, I had a chip on my shoulder a little bit, probably around uh, what had happened you know, during high school and um, losing my dad and, or not ever knowing my dad. Um, and kind of used to just think the world was crap, but then I realized if I changed my attitude and, um, you know, made the best of what I had that, you know, life could be pretty good. So yeah, I think just, um, trying to be positive as much as possible, uh, as opposed to negative. When are you most happy? Uh, probably when I, so you know, with Taylor and also my niece and nephew. And it's also probably when I'm most frustrated as well when I'm with my niece and nephew. But um, <laughs> Kids are like that. Yeah. yeah, and particularly probably when I'm really most happy is when I'm up at home where I grew up with them. Um, there's nothing quite like being at home. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, definitely sport, running, um, and I think also letting go of things um, when relating it to sport. I, I used to get myself pretty anxious and worked up if I hadn't done a certain session. So as you would know, when you, you, know, you have a goal in mind and you want to achieve something, sometimes life just may get in the way of you doing what you think is needed. And I think the, the thing I'm learning to do is just to let go of things that are out of your control. And you've got a big event coming up on the 12th of July for NADOC week, right? Do you want to uh, give us a plug for that one? Yeah, yeah. So um, the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, um, which I'm now a board director, which is great. Myself and uh, Bianca Graham are the first Indigenous um, directors of the IMF organisation. And uh, for this year, for NADOC week, so in collaboration with the National NADOC Committee, um, they're putting together what's called a virtual running event, um, which is uh, the Run, Sweat, Inspire Festival. So if you wanted to um, – so essentially what a virtual running festival is, is you can do a running event of your 
your own um, distance. So that their options are two kilometers, five kilometers, ten kilometers, and marathon, and you and half marathon, I should say. And you do the event um, wherever you're based or wherever you would like to do it. So because a lot of the running events are currently not happening, um, well, hadn't been happening. I, my understanding is that may slowly change. Um, yeah, the IMF have put on this virtual running festival. To, also falls in NATO week, so it, because it's um, the IMF's tenth year, I thought, uh, what better way to participate in the virtual running festival, raise money for IMF, uh, also promote, showcase, and celebrate NATO week? I would run ten kilometres for every year that IMP has been in existence, which it works out to be a hundred years because it's a hundred kilometres because it's its tenth year. So I'm going back up to Newcastle on July twelfth to run a hundred kilometre uh, run, ultra marathon you can call it. And essentially I'm doing it in two ten kilometre loops. Um, one loop will be flat, one loop will be hilly and the idea is that uh, I'll start at six o'clock and every 10 kilometers, um, people can jump in and do a loop with us. They can do one loop. They could do multiple loops if they want. There's a couple of people who are looking at doing 100 kilometers with us. Um, but, yeah, part of it's to raise money for IMF, but also to give us, um, you know, a big challenge and just showcase our strength and resilience as Aboriginal people. Sounds like a fantastic day. I wish you all the best for it. No, no worries. I, I, just, I heard you're going to come up and do the hundred. I've just, uh, I've, I've just been robbed of running ninety k's at uh, Comrades in South Africa. So, uh, so I really, I really should. Yeah, mate, that's one of the great events I'd like to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe next year. It's the uh, centenary next year. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, you're more than welcome to come up if you have the time. And anybody else who happens to be listening, if you're interested, there's a, a Facebook page. Um, which I can't actually remember the name of it, but yeah, love the more the merrier. Do you have any guilty pleasures now? Chocolate. <laughs> Probably. I, I wouldn't even say it's a guilty pleasure. I'm just like, yeah, it's actually. You know what? My guilty pleasure would be KFC. Um, <laughs> I went right off KFC, but the three piece feed, um, chicken thighs, gravy and chips. It just, um doing a few trips on the road, whenever I'd go to Dubbo, I'd always stop and get KFC and it's just sucked me right back in. <laughs> well, with your training schedule, you can probably get away with it and still keep the boyish figure. It's making me want it right now, just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Nat, which uh, person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, definitely my dad. My dad who raised me. Um, like I said, working two jobs. He was always like, you know, very proud, like even just simple things like around if you don't need help, then don't ask, or which can be a problem obviously, particularly around mental health um, for men, but more just in like regards to, you know, financial, like you kind of just, you, you got to carry yourself. Um, and, but he was always the person who would, um, he would take people to sport. He'd always help out. And I actually had a, a mate of mine who I went to primary school, uh, white fellow, not Indigenous fellow, and he just happened to write me a random message, which I completely forgot about. Um, it was about two weeks ago, no, it was three weeks ago, and he goes, hey, mate, can you just let your old man know that um, 
I appreciate everything you did for me as far as picking me up and taking us to sport. I try to do that now for any of the kids who can't make their way to any sport because, you know, their parents might not have a car or, and I just thought, you know, you kind of forget those things that, um, what my dad did. And I just think, you know, the fact that he was like anyone in the community, if you mention his name, they've only got good things to say about him. So, and he was always big on, you always took, like always talk to people. So, um, you know, growing up in that community, if anyone had a conversation or started chatting to me, I always talked. And I think that's worn on me that, you know, you always give people time because, you know, people don't really remember what you do or what you've done. They remember the way you make them feel. And I think that's something that I definitely got off him. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on uh, so many interesting issues on the Good Life podcast today. No, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Linda Burney, Pat Dodson and Louise Taylor. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.